Welcome to Improv Interviews. This is Margot Escott, psychotherapist and improv teacher here in Naples, Florida. And today we have an incredibly special guest. Some people have called him an improv legend, and I think it's true. Michael Gelman is the author of a wonderful book on improvisational theater, improv for actors called The Process, or in Canada, The Process. Michael's been involved with such luminaries as Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Bill Murray, Gilda Radner, Tina Fey, and some of the folks I've had the pleasure of interviewing on this podcast, such as Dave Rakowski, Susan Messing, Joe Billing, Joe Bill rather, and uh, Jeff Milowski, so, uh, and Jimmy Karen. So without further ado, let's talk and find out more about the process that Michael Gelman uses when teaching improvisational theater. Hi, Michael. Uh, good morning. Well, I know you started as a very young person. You were introduced to theater at the Guthrie, was it, in Minneapolis? Well, that, that was my, um, yeah, I, I, the first, we went on a field. My parents were really good about uh, culture. You know, they, they brought us to the symphony and to theater and to all sorts of different things because they wanted to turn us on and they enjoyed it themselves. They were long-term members of the symphony orchestra and the Guthrie Theater which started with uh, Guthrie, um, who came to Minneapolis from Stratford, where I now live. So it's come full circle uh, for me. And, uh, uh, and so uh, there was a field trip, and we went to see the first U.S. production of Arturo, uh, Arturo Ui by Bertolt Brecht. And it's the only play he wrote in America when he was living in Southern California till the Un-American Activities Committee in the 50s deemed him a communist and sent him back to East Berlin. Um, but uh, anyway, there's the, um, I, I saw that play and with Robin Gamble as Uwe and said, I, uh, that's, if, I, if I can do in my life what he just did for me, then that's what I'm doing for the rest of my life. And, uh, and so that was, uh, that was my path. And I, I kind of didn't look back. I pursued that right then and there. Um, I, I, met, uh, I met him years later at a party in Los Angeles when I was living out in LA. <laughs> he, he, I, I said, you know, Robin, uh, I got to tell you, the reason I do what I do, theater, is because uh, of when I saw you at the Guthrie at, in Uwe and that old vibrato voice of, of the old theater guys. He went, Oh, my boy, I'm so terribly sorry. <laughs> it's okay, I forgave you years ago. But that, that, was, the, that was the impetus for me. Uh, I, I, I started uh, pursuing theater from, from that, pretty much that day forward. And I was, I don't know, 16. Wow, and that was a few years ago. I think we're close. What are you saying? Actually, yeah. <laughs> and, um, I saw this wonderful thing on Facebook today. Uh, it said... Um, uh, it, 1990 was 30 years ago. When I think of 30 years ago, it's 1970. <laughs> <Me too. laughs> uh, I don't know. Yes, it was a long time ago. But we also grew up during a time of political unrest and things were going on in this country and improvisation and the, comp the compass in Second City were involved in political... I want to say satire, but political works at the time as well. Oh, satire, absolutely, satire. without a doubt, and 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 pursuing satire full force. Um, there were so many things we felt as young people that uh, needed to be communicated, and what better way to send a message than through comedy? So, I learned my whole career has been understanding how we can utilize comedy to dramatize stories about people that ultimately give a message. And the message shouldn't club people over the head. The message is a couple driving home in their car after the show and saying, oh, I love that scene with the husband and wife. And hey, you know what? There should be a law about property ownership, shouldn't there? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's the idea of entertaining, of comedy, uh, sometimes it's dramatic, um, but but it it's always about, in my mind, communicating our ideas, our thoughts, our principles, um, what's going on in the world today, 
And without that, I don't know if we're really relevant. So you began in uh, a Brave New Workshop in Minneapolis. Yeah, great place. So you got your kind of start there, as you as it were. Okay. Yeah. And you were still a young man when you went over to uh, Second City in Chicago, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I was really influenced by Ron Douglas, who, uh, uh, who was a, uh, I think we mentioned him when we were talking before we started recording it. Ron was at uh, the break, uh, at Second City in Chicago, and he came to Dudley Riggs, and he taught improvisation. Before that, Dudley Riggs in Minneapolis was primarily shows created by the writers. It was a writer's theater, a lot of, uh, a few journalists, brilliant journalists um, uh, from the Minneapolis Star and Tribune. Um, I think Mike Steele is still uh, uh, with us and, and Irv Litovsky and just these who ended up going to the LA Times. It, it just really brilliant men who taught me huge amounts about life and, and theater. But Ron came in and he said, I know this thing called improvisation. And we had kind of heard of it, but no one had really done it. And so he started workshops when I was still in high school. And uh, it just changed my life. I went, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. We can, we can actually, the, the ensemble can create their own pieces and their own work. And you don't have to rely on a writer uh, necessarily. And, and so I was so intrigued and excited about that. I asked him where he learned that. And he said, uh, uh, Chicago, second city in Chicago. I went, okay, I'm moving there. So about a year later, I went down there actually and said, I want to work here. And they said, yeah, why don't you think about finishing college and get out of here? <laughs> There's no work for you here, youngster. <laughs> I went, oh, crap. So a year later, I, I went back and said, okay, I want in. And, and uh, uh, I had like 50 bucks and a ticket back to Minneapolis if I needed it. And that was it. And so I went to, went to uh, Second City. And it took a while, a couple months. I got an, my first equity show there. Uh, within about three days, which was extraordinary. Wow. And, uh, uh, what? What show was that? Um, uh, God, uh, I think it was um, The Typist, The Tiger and the Typist. By, uh, yeah, it, it was wonderful. It, uh, but it was a noontime theater. <laughs> and so I bugged Dell. Dell um, was fond of, of of imbibing in the evening and he uh, woke up around noon with his TV still on and they were promoting the show and it was an eight by 10 picture of me full screen. He woke up and saw my face and went, Oh God, that's that kid. That's been, uh, that's that kid that's been bugging me. Uh, I better give him a shot. So I came into the theater the next that night and he said, okay, you want in, you're in the touring company, get here by tomorrow for rehearsal. And that was great. Had you, you hadn't even taken classes there and you got in the touring company? Yeah. Wow. I was good. You were good. <laughs> and you are good. I know you're good. Um, no, I don't know. I just think they needed warm bodies to do it. Because at the time, uh, the acting community was not uh, uh, flocking to improvisational theater at Second City. It was sort of a, you know, considered a second banana theater. It wasn't, uh, a lot of people said it wasn't legitimate theater. Uh, which meant, I guess, we were illegitimate, which actually we thought was kind of cool. You know, it, it, we were it was just before uh, people started to recognize Second City. I mean, the theater community, certain people knew about it. And Mike Nichols and Elaine May had been, you know, and some of the, the first cast members were starting to get some pretty good work. Story Theater, certainly, on Broadway um, mm -hmm. with Paul Sills was right. brilliant. And, and Goldberg, you know. All these really wonderful people were involved, but they were sort of not big household names like they are today or were. And and so it, it really started when National Lampoon Radio Hour came out, uh, when uh, SNL started. And so that's right around the time that I was getting there, just before that, uh, where, you know, so my first cast was like uh, uh, the Canadians. Canadian Second City because they were in for a month and the two companies had traded places. So uh, my first cast that I worked out with, I wasn't in the show with them, but I did the improv sets every night uh, trying to learn how to do it. 
and uh, was a, who was it? Dan Aykroyd and Gilda and um, uh, John Candy, who is still my favorite person in the world. Um, uh, you know, I forget who else was it. Uh, it uh, Eugene Levy was probably there. So it, it was an extraordinary group of people that started to teach me how to do improvisation for performance. Uh, wonderful. And I'd been in the touring company for about a year and a half. Yeah. So when we finally got on stage, the Vietnam War ended. So, well, our big tar Nixon was gone. Our big targets were gone. So then it, it really changed at that point. Um, it became less about political satire and much more about social satire. What was happening with um, the youth movements of the time and, and the protests, uh, they were kind of diminishing. So what was happening with, uh, with marriage, with um, a, a, the, the kinds of things where pe people were living together instead of getting married, and there was all this social change. So we started to become much more social, I think, social anthropologists as opposed to political satirists. It was a hard transition because we didn't know you need targets to do satire, and we didn't know who our targets were anymore. So that was a it was a tough transition. So you mentioned Dell, and I wanted to ask you what it was like working with Dell or hanging around with Dell. Um, and uh, and you you'd been influenced by Spolin by the time you met Dell, right? Uh, just I it, they touched on it. I mean, certainly we touched on some of that. Uh, up in Minneapolis, but I really understood it when I got there. And, and Dell was not a huge fan of Viola. Right. So, I know. so part of what he was doing was uh, he was he was trying to experiment and explore what the craft could be. Certainly, he was doing that in San Francisco, and he started to do it more in in Chicago. What the craft could be beyond Viola, right? Because it had been, this was in the, um, what, 70, early 70s. So it had been around since 57, and everybody was doing viola, and some of the games were becoming pretty standard, and they were getting a little tired, I think he thought. And so he said, well, where can we go beyond this? And he had been working on the Herald um, in San Francisco um, uh, at the committee, San Francisco committee, and he had come back from there to take on the directorship of Second City in Chicago, and he said, I, he called everybody and said, can I work on the Herald? Can I take the Herald and go with it? And they said, yeah, sure, go for it. And so he said, great. And so we got together, we would get together once or twice a week and work on the Herald for hours. And it was fascinating. And it was taking us into new realms of improvisation. And if Viola Spolin was uh, improvisation 1.0, then certainly Dell's work with the Herald was starting to become 2.0. And but you're credited with actually discovering, naming long form improv. Yeah. A little different from the Herald. I mean, Herald is a long form, but yours was a little different. Well, it, it, was a, it, it came about in kind of an odd way. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, when I came back, I, I would, I, I should just dump, j dive into the story. I'm trying to edit myself while I'm talking to you. Because oh, no edits. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what happened was uh, I, I had a touring company. Uh, and this is actually in the book. But I had a touring company that I was directing in Chicago. Uh, and, and this was in the late uh, mid-'70s. And um, uh, they were not able to do five-person scenes, group scenes we used to call them. Like Two-person scenes were pretty easy, three-person scenes were a little harder, four-person scenes were almost impossible, and group scenes, unless you workshop them as a group, were very, very difficult. Uh, the difficulty uh, progressed in, in geometrically, not arithmetically, in terms of the difficulty factor. So I thought, well, what would happen if I just put them up there for a half an hour, no exits, no entrances, and force them to work as a group? Well, the first 15 minutes was terrible, just awful improv. But then something clicked in. And the last 15 minutes was, and I'm not kidding when I said the last 15 minutes was 
some of the most, it was the most powerful theater I had seen, I think, since I had watched Arturo Uy at the Guthrie. It just, it, it brought tears to my eyes. And Raul Moncada was our stage manager, and he was up in the booth trimming the board. And he saw it, and he started to get into it. And they had created a barbecue center stage. And it, it turns out it was, it, it was a group of people, neighbors, who were there for a barbecue on the, uh, uh, on the day that... Uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. An extraordinary piece of theater and how they all reacted to it and they all, their characters were, were so clear and brilliant and, um, and I didn't even notice it, but over the last like 10 minutes of this half hour, Raul was bringing the lights down lower and lower and lower like it was evening, which they had created. And at the very end, it was just them sitting around and the, he had a red down spot where the where the uh, charcoals were and and he created this kind of red glow like it was coming out of a kettle grill and and everybody sitting around the grill and then he just popped it out you know like took the lights out and it was and I went to Dell I was so so startled and so excited and I went to Dell and said look look at these guys created this extraordinary theater. It was dramatic. It wasn't comedic and they did it. And this is how they did it. They did it half an hour on stage and he goes, Oh, without skipping a beat, he goes, Oh yes, it should be possible uh, to improvise a one act play and uh, transcribe it over overnight and send it off to Samuel French for publication in the morning. Then he paused and said, pointed at me and said, that will be your job. (laughs) my life's work was to create theater dramatic theater full-length plays one-act plays at that time um with improvised improvised theater and he had like 10 of us around the world he gave us different assignments and we were like his little acolytes i think anyway so is would you credit Dell with helping you to create literary structured improvisational forms? Because that's what you've done, really. Um, no, I mean yes and no. Del, look, Dell was my mentor, and and as as any mentor relationship, he became a very close friend. Especially after I came back to Chicago in the in the mid eighties, uh, had been the artistic director of Second City here in Toronto, up in Canada, um, and. And so when I came back, um, uh, we both started teaching at I.O. Sharna had just taken over I.O. from uh, David. And, uh, and so there was a, a, a real excitement in there because Dell was really going full bore with uh, Harold. I started calling it long form uh, up in Canada. I had been experimenting for about a year. I had the keys to the second city. So Saturday morning, I'd open it up and people would come and we had like 20 people that would rotate through every Saturday morning. And we started to saying, how do we develop plays? Because we had to use different techniques. The Viola Spolin work just was great for creating like a, a beginning, middle and end shorter piece. But we found we needed different techniques to really sustain a character for a long period of time. So we started calling it long form just because how do you, stay on stage for half an hour to an hour. And there were guys in San Francisco, I didn't know it at the time, who were already doing it. So, but, but we called it long form. So when I came back to Chicago and I started working with uh, Sharna uh, and Dell, and Dell was teaching heralds and I was teaching what I called long form. And Sharna said, you know, they're mixing up the classes. So Dell will call your classes heralds and Gelman will call your classes long form. And that way the people will know the difference. <laughs> so it became long form. Uh, and then then anything, it started to become, as Sharna started to promote it. She kind of took it over and, and promoted it. And it became, because all improvisation at that time were li- short stuff, right? Lights up, lights down, lights up, lights down. Uh, a scene, blackout. Music, blackout, 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 (laughs) scene, blackout. So so when we said, okay, look, the lights don't come down, you don't have to take the lights out. It's like, oh, you're on stage for a long period of time. So everything where the lights didn't go out Mm -hmm. became long form. Mm -hmm. 
And so that kind of spread a little bit. But, you know, other people were doing it. I mean, my God, they were doing it. They were doing scenario plays for 200 years in Europe, you know, with, with Commedia. Uh, it's, it's been the, the idea of, imp, of, of ensemble or cast-generated theater. Uh, whether it was up here in Canada with with uh, the collective theater movement, brilliant. Uh, One-fourth of the plays at one point in Canada, published plays, were created by the cast, were created by ensemble groups. They called it the collective theater movement, and it was brilliant. Um, uh, they did the farm show where they went out to a farm community and improvised every night for a summer, and they created the farm show, which was the first show in Canada. Um, and it was, it was extraordinary and it was about the politics of, of farming and, and, and what farm farms and farmers and farm communities were going through. They brought it back to Toronto and it ran for 18 months, sold out houses. It was theater past Mirai. They were doing brilliant stuff and all over Europe. People were developing new theater as ensemble based stuff. Comedians in Spain was doing extraordinary stuff. Um, the people at the Navy Yards in San Francisco are creating full-length plays. They're still doing it. They've been together for years. I don't know how many decades. They do it every week. Um, so, so all over the world, people were starting to develop and evolve theater, comedic, dramatic, absurdist, all over the world. They, I was told that after uh, by Russia, some Russian artistic directors that after Perestroika in Russia, Within two weeks, over 210 uh, improvisational theater companies were formed uh, in, in Moscow and Kiev, in those two cities alone, because the actors, after their plays were done, they do an improvisational set and create their own theater, and people would come and see it. And that was it. It's all over the world, and it has been for 2,000 years. Bernie Sollins said a wonderful thing. Bernie Sollins uh, was the artistic, he was the owner of Second City and for many, many years. And he said that, look, that there's been only a few 100-year periods in all of human history that our theater that we know of as theater comes from. It's been a very short bursts of of a hundred year periods where theater comes from said other everything else there was no theater the dark ages whatever there was no theater and and, and he said but our theater this improvisational stuff the the this the theater of minstrels and comedia troops and working off the back of a wagon and going from town to town he said that has been going on non-stop for over two thousand years the theater that we do the drum dramatizing our stories and examining our culture and looking at what's going on in our world and our communities this has been going on non-stop for thousands of years and what an extraordinary thing to be a part of that that stream of 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 storytelling I, I don't know. It's just to me that that makes it exciting. And it, it doesn't matter whether it's short form or long form or, or birch bark form or, you know, whatever form. Um, it doesn't really matter because it's still just actors dramatizing their stories. Well, I know you've been influenced by Joseph Campbell or maybe you influenced yeah. him, but the idea of the archetype and the hero's journey. Um, and you incorporate some of those themes in your work as well, I think. Yeah, but I think we all do. We just didn't know we were doing it until he identified. Actually, Dell introduced me to him. Uh, and he was an extraordinary man, yeah. Joe Campbell. He's one of those guys when you walk into a room, your eye immediately goes to him. You know, those people with that whatever power they have. He was an extraordinary guy. Uh, but... Yeah, the idea of, of a hero's journey is a one form of storytelling um, that, that I think it was Vogel, Vogler, I don't remember his name, but he, um, he created a 17-page article about how to utilize the hero's journey or the idea that Joseph Campbell wrote about 
um, as a structure for film. And so now you see a lot of films since then utilize his, his work. But I think he says it's from our dreams. And he says that all, all of our stories come out of our dreams. He was a, he was a, a real, uh, he, he knew, he, was, he studied with Carl Jung when Carl was very old. And so he's a union, you know, and he said, look, the, the stories are in us. We all want to be warm. We all want to be fed. We all want to um, have sex. We all want to love, have affection. Um, these are the human needs that we dream about. The collective unconscious. Quite so. Quite so. And that's why, isn't that why stories work? That's why we're able to right. improvise and people go, oh, yeah, I can relate to that. Because they can. They've had the same dreams. I want to go back to some folks that you know for a minute. Um, when Tina Fey got her Emmy, she thanked uh, Martin DeMatt, Del Close, and Don DePaulo. And you don't see much about Don DePaulo, but I understand he was a friend of yours, and maybe you could tell us a little mm. bit more about him. Donnie. <laughs> Donnie Dave? Uh, yeah, Donnie was my best friend. Without a doubt, he was my best friend. Uh, before uh, he's he's been my uh, best friend for my whole life. Um, uh, Dime was an extraordinary guy. He was a, a rock and roll drummer. Came to Second City with Beetle boots and a Beetle Beatles haircut. <laughs> uh, he was uh, he was an extraordinary guy. He had been sick uh, uh, as a youth. He had been sick most of his life, which is he died young. And uh, so he spent days and weeks and months in hospital beds reading comic books. So his, he knew a lot about a lot of things, but it was all out of classic comics and, and, and his weird eclectic reading material. And, and uh, so he, uh, he had an extraordinary comedy mind. Uh, he was brilliant. Uh, he and I would go to Dell's house every night we do, you know, we do a show and then the improv set and Del would give notes and we'd go probably smoke something and have a drink. And then we'd say, you want to go to Dell's house and get real notes? And yeah. So we'd go over <laughs> to Dell's house and we'd hang out till like five in the morning talking about everything. And Del would say, oh, you haven't read this? Here. And hand me a book. And he expected me to have it read by rehearsal the next day. I rarely, I just usually skimmed it and faked it, but uh, he knew. And so Donnie and Dell and I hung out almost every night for a couple of years, two, three years. And uh, uh, that was an extraordinary, um, two extraordinary human beings in my life. That I'm forever grateful for. They were um, uh, very influential, very brilliant. Um, and they, they've, they, they've encouraged me to have to work at my absolute, the best I was able to at that time. And I was younger than they were. I was a lot younger. So I was a kid in a, kid in a china shop. I was, I was a disaster sometimes <laughs> backstage at Second City. But, um, uh, but I was working as hard as I could and trying to learn as much as I could from both of them. That's and then Donnie was a friend till, till he died. And we talked, the day he died, we talked for about three hours. I was up directing a show in Toronto, and he was back in Chicago, and, and we hadn't talked in a couple weeks. We used to talk every day. And uh, uh, so we talked for like three, four hours, and he said, I just don't think I can do it anymore. And I said, well, wait till I get back. We'll have dinner before you die. And he went, okay. But he, he didn't make it. He died that night. He died <laughs> very young. And there's really, as I said, there's not much out there about him, really, in I mean, I've done a lot of searching since I saw that and really haven't found Yeah, he was a true journeyman, you know. He never, because he, he didn't leave Second City, he became a director. Um, we created, we co-founded the, uh, Jeff Machowski and uh, uh, Donnie and I and a couple of other guys, we, uh, Martin DeMott, we founded the training center in Chicago and started a more formalized training center um, uh, certainly under Sheldon Patinkin, um, uh, his guidance and direction. And, and so, uh, anyway, we, there were, there was kind of a, 
there was a sense of the improvisation kind of moving forward. But Donnie never got television. He never got uh, big movies or anything like that. He was a true journeyman where he, he directed show after show. He was teaching every almost every day. He was exploring the work and pushing it forward. Uh, he performed, but just locally in Chicago. So there's not a lot of stuff about him. And there's probably quite a few people, like not quite a few, but there's probably a, a number of people from Second City who, you know, when you went to Second City, there was sort of a sense that you were supposed to do television. You're supposed to do television and film or become a writer and and do big work and if you didn't if you just stayed in chicago and kind of did the work it's sort of like oh poor donnie he's still in chicago but donnie was thrilled and the truth is both of us shared a thing i think uh, that i should probably admit and that is i think we both stayed in chicago and worked on improvisation and really tried to push it forward because we were afraid I mean, it's all fear-based, isn't it? Whether you're training people how to act, you're overcoming fear on some level. And I think both of us stayed in Chicago because on some level we were afraid to jump into the big boys pool. <laughs> That's right. quite an admission actually, but I think it's absolutely true. So um, another person is David Shepard because the compass had closed by the time you got there, hadn't it? Or not? Was the compass still going? In oh no, the comp, no, the. Compass, the compass was before Second City, so that was, right. it was the compass, and then Second City was born out of the compass. And did you ever know David Shepard or get to work with oh, him? Oh, sure. I liked David a lot. David was great. Uh, sometimes, you know, he would call me at five in the morning and say, I, you know, you got to do this, you got to do this, and I've got this idea. And David, man, it's five in the morning. And it was probably seven o'clock his time because he was in New York and I was in Chicago. Or sometimes he'd call it when I was in LA, which was even early in the morning. And he'd get up at like 6.30 and call. You know, it's like, David, stop. Um, he, he, like Donnie DiPolo, is really, really, I think, truly the unsung hero of improvisational theater in, in North America. I think David did David's brilliance, and he, did, he you know, he he might have been erratic and and and, and weird sometimes, but he, without Dave, without David's work and inspiration and ideas and um, uh, improvisation would not exist as it does today. He he started everything and. and uh, he really saw how Viola Spolin's games and what Paul Sills was doing could um, uh, become something important, uh, become a voice of the people, become a, a, a place where ideas, a forum, a theatrical, dr dramatized forum for ideas and thoughts and hopes and dreams. He was an extraordinary guy and really no one really, I don't think he's gotten his credit or his due. I always think of him as the father of improv. Is Viola's the mother, David's the father. Yeah, and I think so. You know, we were, I was doing a workshop in Detroit a couple of years ago with, uh, with some of the folks up there. And uh, they, they started talking about Dell. People think Dell was Jesus, you know. Right, <laughs> right, he, right. You know, that he, he came a lot. He was seen in I.O. three days afterwards. You know, I mean, you know, and, and so they said, well, if, if, if he was Jesus, then, then who was, who was uh, Moses? Which I think I said, well, Paul, Paul Sills was, 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 Mo, or Viola was Moses. Probably. And, and, and then they said, well, yeah, okay, then who's Muhammad? And it's like, oh, Keith Johnstone. <laughs> out of Calgary because uh, Keith you know created Impro and he did all this kind of radical stuff and it was it was made a competition so there was a, a lot of stuff that uh, so there's these these are men and women I think who really uh, created the 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 um, did the work did the work the foundational work to really make improvisational an important 
part of the theatrical community and gave us all jobs, frankly. Terrific. <laughs> we're all working because of those guys. Do you want to talk about the process or process in Canada, the book? Because for me, so many things that you did and explained, and I think the um, avenue of having it through, through three students and you were actually the teacher was very powerful. Um, and the way they were questioning themselves, I could really relate to when they would be, you know, thinking things or wondering or questioning. Mm -hmm. but I felt like you were teaching basic viola exercises, but expanding so much more on the direction, the coaching and directing you were giving. For example, um, oh, for example, discovery is a big word. Yeah. And uh, making those discoveries. Can you address that just a little bit, what that means? Because some people may not understand that much about improv, so. Um, yeah, I, well, the basic idea, I think, of, of at least what we were doing when we wrote Process, which was some years ago, mind you. And Mary Scruggs, uh, your brilliant writer, co-editor. Yeah, Mary, Mary was the writer, and I was the, I, I did, we taught a workshop for a year and explored a lot of stuff, but I had been working on it for maybe 10, 12 years before that. And um, I, I believe that when we are when when we are on stage, um, we have what we see, hear, taste, touch, smell. We have our senses, and our job on stage is to focus out, not in. So it's not about showing our homework or our character. It's about allowing our character or ourselves to see, hear, taste, touch, smell. So if I'm on stage improvising. I'm always looking backwards, or I should be. My job is to be in reaction to what I just saw or heard, tasted, touched, or smelled. So my, that keeps me in the present. What keeps me in the present when I'm on stage is to react to what just happened. So oddly enough, in order to move forward improvisationally, we need to be focused on what just happened. We need to look backwards. And those are discoveries. If I look in the environment and see a bird floating through the sky, that's a discovery. I can react to that. Right? I can react to what you just said on stage. I can react to the fact that you turned away from me as opposed to towards me. I can, I can react. If you take a long breath and just go, oh, I can react to that, whatever that means for my character. So my job is to focus out, make discoveries, and then the most important part is be in reaction to those discoveries. Because that's the only way the audience knows who we are. Our character is how we react. But helping students get out of their heads and not script writing when they're focused on an object that to really under, to really be able to see or smell or touch that. Yeah, and you know, Viola Spolin, uh, in the early days we had activity, right? We would say, uh, you know, it's always like washing dishes. Or uh, a, a guy I know from New York calls us, uh, he says, oh, you improvisers are just a bunch of carrot choppers. Because <laughs> every time we get on stage, we start chopping carrot, right. a kitchen, chop, 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 chop. <laughs> so the visuals, they won't be able to see it on the podcast, but the visuals we're doing are great. Uh, creating so, the wear. Yeah. yeah, so but but what we noticed was that when we when we pit one when we did an object when we did an activity to start a scene, which is what was taught then, start with an activity. We noticed that a lot of them were getting pretty cliched. Same activities of washing dishes, washing a floor, uh, painting, you know, it, it started to become the standard improv activities that people would right, start doing. Right. And so we noticed that in order to sustain a character for 30 minutes, if we started by making a discovery and exploring and heightening, whether it's an object or whether it's the environment or the other person, those are the three things that are really right. something, a point of concentration, the environment or the other person, those three things. And we see those and we can react to those. And when we do, there's something that the action of reacting, the action that comes from a series of reactions based on discoveries becomes unique to that character. It becomes organic within the, within the scene itself. 
and and uh, and allows us to create action on stage that is truly unique every single time we're out there, and doesn't rely on just washing dishes because they said kitchen, or 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 uh, scrubbing up because they said surgeons, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is. And and so and that's one of the main things we discovered that I think took uh, started to depart from Viola a bit. Um, in the book, there's an exercise. I, I learned it from Jimmy Corain, kind of a couch game, I would call it, where somebody comes into the scene, there's somebody on the couch, and the person on the couch makes the discovery. It really makes the discovery. Yeah. And then the other person has a line of dialogue, but they're reacting to the discovery, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And that's yeah. a beautiful one. Because there's so much action. Going well, that's on. in the book too. I mean, I was—I yeah. think yeah. I taught Jimmy that one. <laughs> I think Jimmy was. Too. Jimmy, I did. <laughs> uh, he was—he was in my theater company he, uh, for a bit. He—he he was great. I just—I love Corinne. Uh, but he, um, yeah, it's called Couch, and and the idea was to understand. Uh, it teaches a whole bunch of different things, which are in the book. But essentially, it's uh, a guy's. Uh, someone's on the couch. Someone else enters with a bag of groceries. They stop at the couch. The person that's on the couch reacts to a discovery. And the uh, a person who entered crosses upstage of the couch, puts the groceries down on a table, turns and says, I brought the groceries home. And that's the scene. That's the whole exercise. Right. <laughs> but it, it can get into so many wonderful complications. It also teaches us how to sustain uh, uh, the scenic focus as we cross upstage of the couch, it teaches us how to make discoveries and be in reaction as opposed to labeling. Um, instead of saying, oh, I see you came in late. It's like, oh my God, a bug, right? And, and then I can react to what you said rather than have to try to respond to you. So there's this huge difference we're finding, uh, or maybe it's been so, around so long, it's, we're not finding it anymore, we found it, but between responding and reacting mm -hmm. and responding a lot of improvisation I think has become responding which tends to be intellectual um, uh, non-physical verbal right I'm responding whereas reacting I think is a more theatrical principle and reacting has to do with emotion and physical 90% of all human communication is physical 90% percent so <laughs> when 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 we're negating that and standing still on stage and trying to come up with the next funny line we're not really participating in theater we're in some kind of hybrid uh i, I think that's what uh, uh, came out of io a little bit in some cases was improv and i think it's dell said i'm going to create a new art form and i think he did I think there's a the improv is a, a hybrid between uh, improvisational theater and stand up, right? Whereas uh, there's another form of improvisation that's more theatrical and has to do with reacting and some of the basic principles and tenets that have been around in acting training for at least a hundred years now since Stanislavski and Method. So, so we're trying. What we're trying to do is trying to make sure that improvisation stays a theatrical form, as opposed to a verbal dexterity form. Right, right, right. right. And I think there's three branches. You know, there's improv, and then there's uh, utilizing improvisation for corporations, and then there's using it to create theater, and then there's using it as therapy, as you're involved with. So there's all these different things that improvisation is starting to become useful for uh, that, that are, are slightly different and take different tools. So just, just like it takes different tools to build build a house as opposed to fix a car, it takes different tools to do improv as opposed to improvisation. Right. I think. I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, I do have a close friend in here in Naples who studied with you and said, and he studied with Dell as well, and he remembers you as being a really kind teacher, that you were really kind. And I think... That was when John Favreau was selling T-shirts in the lobby or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, it, 
Well, that's very nice of him. I think there's uh, hundreds of people that would probably say exactly the opposite. <laughs> um, look, my, my job as a teacher, I feel, is to try and get, try and help people achieve the best they can in that, at that time, in that day. You know, and, and sometimes I think for a while we learned from Dell and Dell was a real hard taskmaster and he could, he could really make you feel small some days and make you feel like a king other days. And, uh, and, and his, he, it was his methodology of teaching. So we all kind of taught like that for a while where it was, I think, we, we browbeat too much. We demanded too much. We, we, uh, we pushed actors to try to achieve in the sense that if we push them they would do it on stage and then have this revelation like oh my god now i get it i understand how to improvise better because you pushed me thank you well as we get more sophisticated and we get older and we start to understand some of the principles of education and like in the book process, the four characters in the book are the four learning styles, the four basic learning styles. So each character represents a different learning style. Uh, uh, and that's why we made the characters who they are. So, so on some days, if you push someone and, and they're open to it, they can achieve some extraordinary breakthroughs. And other days, you push that same person, you push them too hard, and they have a complete breakdown and don't want to take the workshop anymore. So it, one must find a balance. And, and so I have found over the years that positive works better than negative. Um, uh, trying to encourage as opposed to push. Trying to um, elevate spiritually as opposed to um, uh, browbeat or humiliate, you know, all the things, the way I learned was from Dell and Dell, Dell was a tough teacher. So was Paul Sills. Paul Sills threw a chair at me once and just about missed my head. You know, I was like, I was, and, he, and he did it at Second City Toronto when I was the artistic director there. And on the one hand, I went, well, that son of a bitch just threw a chair at me. And the other side of me, oh, my God, I'm one of the guys Paul Sills threw a chair at. I'm totally in. I'm one of the guys. You know, but, but the bottom line is it's not a good way to teach. And, and maybe it's an okay way to direct for some people sometimes. But there, there's different people and different things that are needed on different days. So as we get older and more experienced, we understand what we, how to be a servant to our students. How can we serve our students? Because that's our job. Our job is to serve them, not to teach them. We can provide opportunities for them to teach themselves. We can provide opportunities and, and structures and games or, or whatever to allow them to make discoveries. And that's what Viola was really about, is changing the educational process as a, as a process of discovery as opposed to um, learn, you know, hitting them over the head to learn math by rote. How can we, and, and, and those principles of, of education for good or ill are coming in all over the place. And sometimes they're over, overly or misused and sometimes they work brilliantly. But she made sure that improvisation, the education of improvisational theater when it's done well, is done so that everybody in the room feels safe everybody is encouraged to grow and that we can facilitate that growth in the most positive way we can. And some days we miss and some days we piss a student off and they go away and some days people achieve brilliance. So if I was nice to your friend for a while, that's great. <laughs> I'm so glad there have been other people that would say the opposite. Well, I was going to ask what makes a good improvisation teacher, but I think you said it went to serve your students. Yeah. Serve the people you're working with. I think and, so. And, and frankly, serve the people that are paying you. I mean, we get paid to teach because people to pay tuition. Right. And we are. We are their employee. Yeah. We're, not, we're not their boss. We're not their... Exactly. 
you know, we're not even a teacher. We're really more of a, of a guide, a coach. Armed with. Uh, and that's how it is in my profession. I don't, I tell people, you know, we're equals in here just because I might have different education doesn't matter because if there's a status differential, people can't be honest and real. They have to feel comfortable. That's right. So um, before we end, which we're going to have to soon, I guess, but I want to ask you, what are you doing right now? Are you some projects you're involved with in, in Toronto or what's going on? Yeah, my wife is just starting um, uh, a project that we're developing called Love and Hate. And it has to do with, um, she was involved in the first uh, uh, employment uh, uh, shooting in Canada at uh, uh, kind of an untold story here in Canada of the first uh, first person to go into a workplace and she had some friends that died and so she's doing a kind of an allegory play Brechtian kind of epic theater style piece that will be developed by the ensemble called Love Hate and uh, that starts uh, um, gosh we're starting tomorrow <laughs> tomorrow's our first rehearsal so we're doing that uh teaching at i uh, te still teach at second city keep my hand in um i we're going to lyon france uh uh for the improv festival in lyon and then uh scripted uh, brussels uh after that and then uh, a couple days of uh re-honeymoon in paris Lovely. <laughs> so that's coming up in a few months and so uh we 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 teach uh around the world we conduct classes through process theater um and people can go on to you know find process theater online um i'm doing workshops with michaeljgelman.com i mean not.com michaeljgelman uh workshops on on facebook so we're um we're we're doing the work as well as we can when we see an opportunity to do it that's great. Well, that's wonderful. And hopefully, doesn't pay the mortgage, mind you, but it's, it's great work. <laughs> it is great work. And we'd love to have you in Florida. I'm going to talk to some friends about this and see what we can do. Really, what a pleasure talking to you. And I'm just uh, so inspired by your work. So I definitely want to study with you someday. That would be grand. And Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> And um, any uh, words of inspiration for people who are just getting into improvisation, whatever, whatever part of it they're getting. I still like to perform, don't get me wrong. I love teaching applied improv, but really I love performing <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so what advice would you have? For well, is it all, well, we used to sarcastically say run away. <laughs> and, but, but nowadays I think I, I more or less, uh, I don't have huge advice. Look, people know, they know deep down when they want to do it. It's something that they have to do. And whether it's stand-up or storytelling or writing or improvisation or acting or dance or playing music, you know in your heart you just cannot have an okay life without pursuing it on some level. And when you know that, don't hold back go do it because well, you never know you never know i'm so appreciative that you didn't hold back michael gelman and i again thank you so much for all the gifts that you've given to so many people over the years really appreciated oh gosh <laughs> okay. and and i'm sure you can be mean if you want to i can see that <laughs> so i'm not going to be all roses thank you again michael thank you